Hey there, and welcome to the Craftish Podcast, episode 36. I'm Vicki Howell. So recently, there has been a whole lot of Brit & Co. in my life. And for those of you who may not be familiar with the company, they're a wildly popular media outlet aiming to educate and inspire women. The Brit & Co.'s vibe is youthful, fresh, and really just fun. So in January, I flew out to their San Francisco studio to film an online knitting class aimed at getting their audience knitting. And we did that by teaching how to within the context of making actual projects they'd want to wear. That class incidentally went live in February and can be found on Brit.co. So then last weekend, I had the pleasure of attending the Brit & Co. Create & Cultivate event at South by Southwest, which is this huge music film um, interactive event that happens every year here in Austin, Texas. So this event was filled with hundreds of women, amazing panelists, and more beautiful products and projects than the eye could take in even with a long sweeping glance. In between all of that, though, I sat down with this week's guest, Brit & Co.'s Chief Creative Officer, Angelica Temple. During our conversation, we talked about her journey from art school student to running the creative side of a major brand. Her tips on how to create a visual story for your own personal social media presence, how Brit & Co. keeps millions of millennial readers engaged in their content, and why she herself has chosen to write and talk about her very personal decisions surrounding the birth of her first child. Let's meet Angelica now. Angelica Temple, thank you so much for being on Craftish. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat. We I've spent a lot of time over the course of this podcast series talking with independent artists and crafters and entrepreneurs, and not as much time focused on the sort of professional aspect of being creative, whether it's working for a corporation or a Mm -hmm. startup. And you have a title that I think just really embodies the awesomeness of when you meet like the power of business and the power of creativity. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You're the chief creative officer for Brit & Co. And I wonder if you would start off by talking that actually the first time I ever heard that term was when I heard Jessica Alba speak at South by Southwest mm-hmm. last year, the year before about her role in the honest company. So I would love if you would just sort of share what that role looks like for you within the company you work for. Yeah, it's, it's a funny question because we've sort of explored different names of my role over the years. And, you know, because we're a company that's centered around creativity, it ends up kind of feeling like, well, being the chief creative officer means that you're kind of on every single team. So what it means for Britain Co. is, you know, that I, I was part of the beginning of the company. You know, I was the first employee besides Brit working in and out of each other's apartments and so on for the, for the first year or so. And what it's come to mean is that, you know, I'm basically the lead creative voice on basically every team. Um, in addition to that, I lead all three content teams. So that includes editorial, video, and creative. And within creative is, you know, photographers, DIYers, designers, and so on. And so really understanding um, how our brand brings to life our mission. Uh, and sort of, I always feel that visual and editorial voice are very closely aligned. And when people talk about how they define their voice and and their style guide, uh, they're usually viewed separately, uh, whereas I've taken a pretty different approach, which is we're all sort of one being. So how are we all speaking the same language, whether it's through a color palette or through actual copy and sort of what silly abbreviations we might use? 
so that's kind of a vague definition of what it means here. Um, do you think that that, yeah. that way of looking at things has, do you think the genesis of that has been where we are visually on the internet? I mean, now that we're living in the days of Instagram and Pinterest, it's a whole different world than it was even five years ago, let, let alone 10 years ago. Yeah, everyone everyone is creating content, right? And so every photo that you post just as an individual has a caption or has something quippy that you want to say with it. And so you have, I think people end up having to think about visuals and words more than they did before. Um, because usually when you look at photos, you know, more than 10 years ago, let's say 20, <laughs> you'd be describing something in person to someone. Mm-hmm. And now it's sort of, what's my little what's my little one sentence or, or three words that go with this? And so I do think that you are much more married than they used to be. Do you think that, so when you approach a photo shoot, are mm-hmm. you thinking about what those three words are? Um, I am. I would say I'm always thinking about the angle. So a lot of times when we're, when it comes to a photo shoot, so let's say we were doing a DIY couch cushion or floor cushion, we'll just say, what's the angle? So are we repurposing something? Is it on the cheap? Is it on a budget? Is it, this is a weekend project. This is actually going to take you a super long time. And so kind of thinking about all of those pieces of what's the story that we're about to tell before we actually create the project and shoot it, uh, do come into play. And so maybe it's not the three words, but I do think of the title, you know, or what is my point of view? Who am I when I'm making this? Uh, before I go into anything. You've been a part of sculpting um, and creating such a clear branded personality for Brit & Co. And I want to come back to that. But first, Mm -hmm. I wanted to sort of hear a little bit more about sort of your own pathway to this particular place um, career-wise for yourself. You, first of all, you did, uh, well, let's start here. Were you creative as a child? Yes, absolutely. What did that look like for you? Were you a painter? Were you a writer? Did you do anything? I actually liked to illustrate my own stories, which now that I think about it kind of adds up to where I am now. But I really liked to draw and paint and all of that stuff. But I usually like to have it tell a story or be some kind of narrative um, when I was really little. And and was that nurtured within your household? Absolutely. My mom, um, you know, in a classic mom way probably doesn't think of herself as creative, but she was always making things um, and really filled our house with patterns and colors. And um, I'm of Indian origin. And so we had, you know, every color under the sun and every pattern texture and so on in the house. And I think that actually heavily influenced me. Um, And she would, she made all of our textiles, like our table linens, she made my prom dress, all of that stuff. She made the textiles? She um, She wove them? So she's woven textiles, like our placemats and that type of stuff, and then has also sewn linens, kind of more basic stuff. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, I think I always knew that if you wanted to figure something out, you could probably make it. (laughs) Yeah, which I think is funny because that's also um, kind of a generational thing as well, I think, you know, because my mom was absolutely the same way. Like, well, we can't, for whatever it is, whether you don't live close to a store, you don't have the means to pay for it once you get there. Like, Mm -hmm. just like, you know what, let's just do it. And I think we're now at a place where the motives might be different. Yes. But we're really embracing DIY in a way that I think was more practical, maybe in the 60s. And Mm -hmm. now it's, 
it's for a different reason. It's for what do you what do you see that reason being? Yeah, you see it as well, community. I would, say, as, I, would, I would say it's a mix. You know, in the past, and again, going back to you know, my mom as I was growing up and actually getting into art classes and then majoring in art, she would always say, you know, you must have gotten your creativity from your grandmother, and I would think. I got it from you, (laughs) you know, and I think because it was like you were saying practical or, you know, I can't find this, so I'm going to make it. Whereas now I think um, there's a community aspect, there's making things together, there's bringing people into your process and kind of saying, look what I'm making. And then there's really the simple, and I don't mean this in negative, in a negative way, but showing off what you can do, right? And showing off what you figured out and really showcasing your own creativity. And because of social media, that's become a thing like check out how clever I am or what I found or what I made. I wonder if any of it has to do also with just sort of um, the need for something tactile in a digital world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what, and yeah, what, but what's amazing now is there's the license to do it because you've got all these visual, like now it's been made to seem like, you know, any form of DIY has been given sort of nod to an art form because there's these beautiful visual representations because everyone's carrying a tiny computer and phone, I mean, and camera in their pocket. Yes. And I think we've um, been able to add the term creativity and the term art to things that maybe weren't always thought of as such. You know, so assembling a beautiful table, putting together a gorgeous meal has become an expression of creativity, which is so awesome to see. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me because over the years I've had so many conversations with people who who are really hard on themselves and, you know, about their sort of own creative prowess, just thinking mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm not an artist, or I'm not creative, because that's what's been told to them, either in school or by elders. And it's it's kind of soul crushing because there's so many ways to be creative. There's creativity in math even. Um, and it's yes. exciting to be at a point where we're sort of seeing a broadened definition. I totally agree. And, and I found, you know, even, I mean, throughout the years is that people will take art classes and this, that, and the other, and they still think of themselves as not creative or, and I think to myself, you're pursuing the craft of making something that is creative in itself. Right. Well, I think also, um, and, you know, I'm older than you are, but I think that also when probably even 20 years ago or or maybe even less than that, we didn't think of of going to art school for anything but sculpting or painting. Like we didn't realize Mm -hmm. like how how broad the definition could be. So when you when people say that they're not artists they might Mm -hmm. they might be in their head referring to the fact that they don't paint right absolutely you mentioned the art of setting a nice table and I Mm -hmm. noticed on the interwebs some gorgeous pictures from your wedding Oh, yeah. Um, Something we have in common. We both got married in wine country um, in Northern California. Beautiful. um, (laughs) Yes, you did it. We we eloped to a wine cave um, in Calistoga. But I loved loved the simplicity and beauty of the setup. And I wanted, I was wondering if you would share sort of some of the, um, what went into kind of designing your own, Mm -hmm. your own wedding. Absolutely. Um, So, well, I'll first tell you the funny thing, which is how we found the venue, which is I Google searched for Northern California Vineyard Wedding, no noise restrictions. 
And this was the first venue that came up. That's funny. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, so we went up and, um, you know, both my husband and I are, we're outdoorsy folks, I guess, as you call it. We love to go on hikes and outdoor adventures and that kind of thing. So it was really important to us to be surrounded by natural beauty. Um, but of course, I wanted to make a lot of decorations. And so my approach to that was really thinking what's going to work within this space and what kind of complements where we are. And so we actually ended up building a structure um, because we didn't want to have a tent, of course, because although we were in a drought at that time, thankfully today we're not. But um, and so and they didn't have a tent infrastructure or anything like that. And so we actually came up with let's create a tent out of garlands made out of pom poms and silk. And my idea there was really that uh, I've seen a lot of paper decor at weddings, which is beautiful, but I didn't like the idea of creating something that would then, you know, get recycled or tossed out right after or would be completely ruined. I really wanted to create something that we could keep and use over the years and so on. So that was one um, piece of the puzzle in terms of choosing my materials. And um, actually for about nine months before the wedding, We had a weekly session that I called AP Crafting, um, my former initials being AP, and I would have anywhere from five to ten friends over, and I'd give them a task. So a lot of it was making pom-poms, cutting, you know, ripping pieces of silk lining and cotton and cutting tulle, wrapping jars and so on, and I'd provide them food and obviously show them how to do it. And it was actually this really awesome community building experience because most of these people would never call themselves creative. They would never have thought they'd help make decorations for a wedding, (laughs) which was also kind of doubling as an art installation. You know what's also awesome about that is that then they feel fully invested in the overall experience. I mean, of course, they're already invested in you, but that it just sort of takes the whole experience to another level, I think. Absolutely. And it was always kind of a hodgepodge of people, right? I had a list of about 30 people in San Francisco who I'd email every week and say, okay, we're doing this on Wednesday. And so a different mix would come each time. And it was really cool because they all got to know each other, you know, anyone that didn't before the wedding. And then actually at the wedding on the program, on the back, I said, you know, special thanks to the AP crafters. And it was a list of 40 names who actually helped make the whole thing happen. Yeah, which was really, really cool. I love that. So to backtrack a little bit, mm-hmm. you go to school and then you end up going on a, um, you get into an artist residency mm-hmm. at the Vermont Studio Center. Yes. What, what did you learn from that experience um, for people that have never done a residency? Can you, can mm-hmm. you kind of sort of explain that and yeah. then tell us, like pull from it what has, from that experience, if anything, you've applied to not only this, you know, the wedding you were just describing, but really your current role now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So um, just a little bit about art residencies in general. Uh, the easiest way to describe them is, you know, an all year round summer camp for adults. Uh, it's basically each program is designed for people to come between two and four weeks Uh, to just pursue their craft. Some people win fellowships to do so, some people pay to attend, and it really runs the gamut in terms of painters, sculptors, illustrators, photographers, and so on. Um, How I got into it was actually almost a one-year staff artist residency. So that basically meant that for 20 hours a week or so, I was the graphic designer and the 
president's assistant. And then for the rest of the time, I had access to a studio. I had a materials budget, food and board, and all of that good stuff. What a great opportunity. Oh, my gosh. It was perfect for after school. You know, I had no idea what I wanted to do. My husband had another semester to complete. um, Were you married at that point? We weren't. No, no. So my boyfriend at the time. But, yeah. (laughs) We've been together for 14 years. So, um, but yeah, so it was, it was the perfect thing. And what was really, really interesting about it is that I met so many different types of people. You know, there were people who took this as their only vacation in the year, right. From their, you know, day-to-day job being a receptionist or something, you know, a waitress and so on. Again, those are still creative professions, but this was their time to pursue their passion, And so they usually came with a set plan and here's what I'm going to create and I'm going to do all these landscape paintings and so on. But, um, and I worked on a few different art installations myself. And I think what I really learned there is that when people are given permission to be creative, whether it's by themselves or through an outside construct, then they can actually be free to do it. They don't feel the same pressure to deliver on something um, that you do if it's a gift or if it's, you know, you're painting a wall in your house and you want to do a mural. Um, there's a lot more pressure with that. Whereas this was, you're just coming here to create something for the sake of it and for your own, you know, inner enrichment and great if you come out with something not required. And I think that was, that really struck me uh, where you can find that kernel of creativity in everyone and that people are just looking for people to talk to and kind of you know, relate to about here are the struggles I'm going through and so on. And, and having to speak about your process and work is really a really great exercise, I would say. Was there a community aspect there? Were there groups oh, at the end? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, sorry, I'll add more context. There, um, so there would be 50 new artists that would arrive each month. Um, so there would be the year-long staff artists like myself, and there were about 20 of us. And then in addition to that, there'd be people who would come for about four weeks, 50 at a time. And so they're treated as like a class, you know, just like camp or school or whatever. And so they would all bond and kind of, there'd be the sculpture group, the painting people would be in one building. There was a writer's block and so on. And so there'd be open studios every other week where you'd kind of walk around, learn about everyone's work and so on. Um, And you definitely saw social groups come out of that, artist collaborations that were born there and so on. What was your area of study while you were there? Um, So I primarily did, I did installation art. So I had come from, um, I went to Middlebury, also in Vermont, and studied philosophy and studio art, super practical majors. (laughs) It worked out for you though, kid. (laughs) Yes. I know, who knew that the art one would be, would be the linchpin. But anyway, so um, I had done sculpture and printmaking. So at the studio center, I did installation sculpture. So what I created was, uh, I have this obsession with fabric and patterns. And so I sourced a lot of um, used discarded fabric because in Vermont specifically, you can find, there's always free boxes on the side of the road in the summertime of random curtains and books and that kind of stuff. And so I actually collected a lot of that and created this installation where it was a room of I created small little pod-like shapes out of metal and sewed fabric around them, the whole concept being just to celebrate the textile itself and kind of interact with it in a way that was not functional and that was really just artful and sort of playful. Uh, And so that's what I did there. 
So was that you having that as sort of your playground to play with? Did you sort of, is that where, was that sort of the genesis of how you could create this sort of beautiful structure for your own wedding? I think so, yeah. Um, I love the idea of things suspended in air to create space. You know, it, it kind of makes no sense and it's structureless, but it works. Is it difficult at all for someone who is so clearly inherently creative to have a role where your first and foremost job is to execute somebody else's branded vision? That, that's an interesting question. I would say um, that the answer to that has probably evolved over the years. Um, in the beginning, you know, when I was creating all of the projects and content, um, it was really pretty much self-informed. I worked very closely with Britt, but uh, she's um, hands-off in the good way. You know, she kind of would have, we'd talk about ideas and things we wanted to cover, but then for the most part, I was left to my own devices to create the content. And so as we evolved and hired people, it's actually been the opposite where uh, what's challenging for me is that I have a set idea, uh, but I don't, I no longer execute it. Right. And so I'm working with a lot of different DIYers and photographers to say like, here's what I have in mind. Um, here's how I think it can come together. And then it's up to them to really bring life to it. So it's sort of a mixed answer. <laughs> Was that difficult to make that leap where you had to relinquish that bit of control? Absolutely. Um, it's it's difficult for two reasons. One, I love making things and I love being on set, being in shoots, you know, really trying to figure something out with my hands. And then the other piece is, um, you know, sometimes it's easy to forget how to make something and to feel like, am I just coming up with these ideas, you know, out of nowhere? Is this even worthwhile? And, and there's the kind of self-doubt that every creative person, artist experiences. Um, but how it kind of fixes itself is that when you work with so many other creative people, they bring such a different spin to whatever it is that you're kind of figuring out that it kind of becomes a whole new thing, which is really rewarding, actually. Do you feed off that sort of group, that collective energy, creative energy? Absolutely. I would say my own creative point of view has evolved so much with growing a team, so much more than it did in the first year or two. Now that there's, so the creative team itself is about 22 people and each of them has such a unique point of view, but they all understand our mission and our our brand voice. And, and I, I really get inspired every day by what they create. Let's talk a little bit about that mission. Were you, mm-hmm. when you think mission, you think, or at least I do, mm-hmm. uh, I think of an analytical aspect of something. And, and so I would love to hear about how you merge something that's so fluid, like, mm-hmm. like a creative um, presence with with a, such a clear, Britain Co. has such a clear brand. I mean, the color scheme, how everything looks, you mm-hmm. don't, you've gotten to the point where you don't even need to place your logo and things, and it's clear. Does that start, did that start in the living room with you and Britt? Was, that, was it always like, we're going to use this set of colors, and this is always going to look clear and saturated? Or is this something that's evolved over the time? How do you approach something like that that seems kind of big and overwhelming and fluid and really put it into put it into almost like a bullet point that you can tell your team of 20 something people so that they know and execute it the way that you want yeah so from a visual perspective it's definitely evolved I think when I look at it now I think how weren't we here right away (laughs) 
sometimes because it it feels so obvious, right? It feels so clear. Like you said, we don't even have to put the logo on something. But um, when it started, you know, we knew that we loved color and pattern and it was kind of as simple as that. We knew that from a, a tone perspective, we wanted to be relatable and sort of speak to everyone like we're your well-informed best friend, right? We don't talk down to people. We're not snarky um, and we're not sort of above anything. And so I think as we uncovered that voice a little bit more, the visuals actually aligned to that. And sort of when we started, we had some really, really bold colors and high contrast, and that felt a little aggressive and a little too sensational. Then we went a little overly minimalist, in my opinion, where I thought, wait, this isn't, we're not really practicing what we preach here. This feels like, I mean, I love kinfolk, don't get me wrong, but it feels a little too escalated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the way that I kind of think of it is, is you have to reevaluate your own mood board, your own color palette every, every quarter, at least every year. And kind of say, how are we feeling about this? What are we missing? Because it does become really clear after you've been in it, you know, for a couple of months to say, oh, this is this is what's wrong. And this is what's not there. And how do you transition that from a business perspective so that you don't lose your followers? And I don't mean lose like they're leaving you, but lose Mm -hmm. the sort of loyalty of them automatically clicking on it because they know it's you. Yeah, I think um, I'd like to think what we've done is continuously refined um, the visual way that we communicate with people. And so it's only become more Brit Co., if that makes sense. Um, But it is a challenge. And actually, going into this year, we have a lot of ideas about maturing our brand and sort of adding more dimension to everything. Uh, There are plenty of other brands that share our color palette and and our vibe. And, you know, I think we have a strong point of view, but we share it with people. We're not unaware of that. And so how do we grow up? You know, now we're five. <laughs> and what does that mean to be a little bit more immature of a company and to, to add some more dimension? And I always use this kind of funny combo of words, but I'd like to see us becoming a little bit more raw and refined at the same time. Mm-hmm. So letting people in, but almost adding some higher production, higher quality production to our work. Yeah. And that's the fine balance, isn't it? We're in a time where Um, you know, video production is a lot of what I do personally. And Mm -hmm. where, you know, three years ago, even my jobs were, the majority of them were very like nicely produced, edited, you know, titles kind of videos. And now the majority of what I do are Facebook live streams, frankly, like they like just so, so raw and so Mm -hmm. accessible. I think accessibility is the key, but finding the balance, but they're not pretty, you know, and it's finding that balance that I think that we're all trying to pioneer right now Mm -hmm. um, to figure out how, how to make them both work. And from a business perspective, it's, it's tough to kind of decide, okay, I'm going to invest a ton of time, resources, and people into this high production piece when there is Facebook Live as an option, you know, and it's sort of how do you make those choices and how do you continue to move your brand forward creatively, but also connect with your your viewers and users? Yeah, it's an exciting time. It's almost like the advent of, you know, talkies, really, is yeah. that we're, we're all getting to play only on a digital platform now. So it'll be so interesting to see where we're all at in even two years from now. Absolutely. At what point did you have a bunch of DIY courses on 
on the website. Um, mm-hmm. I recently came and, and, and shot a knitting one for you. You, yeah. have, you have quilting, you have it, you, you actually have professional ones as well, but also um, sewing and a ton of other cool stuff, mm-hmm. embroidery. Was DIY, specifically crafting, always going to be a part of Britain Co? Or is this something that you as an artist really felt was important to bring on? Um, absolutely. It has always been a part of it. I'd say we started really um, entrenched in DIY. And actually, when Britt approached me to say, hey, do you want to work on this project, aka Britain Co., <laughs> Um, it was kind of this where she saw an intersection between creativity and tech. And so the idea that mobile apps and websites could help teach you to be creative. So sort of her story is that she had you know, quit her job at Google. She had worked at a bunch of tech companies. And then um, she was getting ready for her wedding and wanted to make stuff, right? So she went to Tech Shop, which is basically like a creative gym, um, learned how to laser cut, learned how to sew, and kind of took all these things on and realized, oh, this is super gratifying. And I'm actually using technological advances to be more creative. And so that was kind of, that is what inspired Britain Co. And so that really has been at the core from the beginning and always kind of is our, maybe our North Star or our center point uh, as we continue to grow and expand far beyond that. How has how you are presenting those courses evolved over, um, especially over, well, I guess you're five, so over the whole amount of time um, Mm -hmm. that you've been putting them out? Because um, from my experience in online education, at the beginning, full courses that would take hours to go through were really big. And Mm -hmm. now they seem to have gotten more condensed. Mm -hmm. Has that been a change for you? Yeah. So, um, you know, when we started in terms of DIY, it was all just tutorials on the site, you know, similar to a DIY blog or that type of thing. And then um, two or three years ago, we started delving into classes, kind of thinking, you know, people don't have these foundational DIY skills. And so how can we provide something that people can actually do? And so our rule for all of our classes has been under an hour. And so some of them are actually only 20 minutes and it's kind of a, a more of a quick skill. And then some are a little bit over an hour and so on. But really they all are around that timeline because, you know, our main demographic being millennial means they don't have more than 30 minutes to spend on something and probably won't. And so how can we capture them in that moment? And then get them inspired to continue on. I mean, frankly, as a Gen Xer, I don't have much more than 30 minutes either. Neither do I. I've got three kids and a career. Yeah. And I'm technically, I think I'm like the oldest age millennial. And I'm also the youngest Gen X. So So (laughs) I I was actually, we were having a conversation in your studios when I was there where we were, and we were all Googling trying to figure out. Because I was trying to figure out if I'd given birth to millennials. That was my argument. Oh, yeah. That was my argument when they <laughs> sassed me that since That's I might have created a millennial brain in my inside my own body, like maybe I would know. <laughs> but we couldn't find a hard answer anywhere about so here's when. The, here's what I've gathered because okay. I've also looked at this, and my brother's seven years older than me, so I'm 33. I was born in 1983. What I learned is that the millennial term is basically 1982 through two, through 2000 or so, I think is when people are born considered millennials. And then Gen X ends in 1984, which is why 83 is like, you know, the magical year that you're both. So but- I'd read 83 <laughs> to 2004. 
Okay. So I definitely gave birth to one millennial and it's yes. up in the air whether I did because I have a 17-year-old and then I have a 15-year-old that was born in 2002, okay. but who knows? <laughs> who knows? <laughs> and, what, know, and what is my seven-year-old? What is she considered? Right, she, she's going to need a new name. My baby, who knows what she's going to be? What is she going to be? <laughs> what, let's give them a good one. <laughs> a better a better name than, um, what were they, than Gen Wires, which was the yes. in-between term. That might be what you are. That's true. <laughs> You're the transitional. Or, or I'm, I'm the Pepsi generation, I think. Okay. That works <laughs> too. commercial term. That works too. What, uh, now that, you know, at, at the time of this recording, you um, are getting very close to becoming a mother yourself. Yes. What about, since we talked a bit about your own mom and creativity, mm-hmm. how how will you infuse creativity in your little one's life? And will it be any different than your mom did? Or, or what are some similarities or differences that you think that you'll approach? Um, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited to see what actually happens. <laughs> you know, I have a lot of good intentions. Um, you know, just starting at the simple, most simplest level, in terms of the nursery, I'm actually creating all of the decor out of textiles, some from the wedding. Um, so some garlands are getting repurposed and so on. So hopefully she'll be surrounded by things that were made for her space, which will be inspiring. But in terms of the day-to-day, you know, I think, you know, making time for just playing around with materials and clay and and paints and that kind of stuff is something that I can't imagine not doing. That feels really good to me. And then, and then like my mom, you know, making stuff and kind of creating a household where you realize, oh, if I can't find something or if I don't, if I've come up with something in my mind, I can actually just make it. And really trying to embrace that and encourage that behavior and always figure out what can we do with this, you know, paper towel roll or, you know, what, especially, I mean, even fort building, right, is like Mm -hmm. very early creativity and so fun. And I love to do that with my nephews. So, I mean, and honestly, now it's a precursor to glamping. So it's a life skill. (laughs) Absolutely. You wrote an article uh, recently on the Britain Co., I guess just for Britain Co., um, about C-sections. And I wanted to know if you'd be open to talking a little bit about that. Sure, yeah. The whole purpose of the article was sort of talking about feeling confident and okay with the reality of having a a C-section. And I don't think that that has been talked about enough. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I personally, just to share a personal story, my, um, I mean, I didn't have C-sections. That just wasn't the reality that, that was mine. But one of my childhood best friends had to have an emergency C-section with her first. Mm -hmm. And so the second one, because her second baby, well, she's older when she, when Mm -hmm. he he was born, but was also within 13 months of having her first one, the Mm. hospital required a C-section. That was just their rule. And um, someone else that we know, when she found out that about that made a big deal about it, about how awful that was and how, like Mm. how she must feel so terrible about that. And Mm -hmm. my, my girlfriend was just like, it, it's not that bad. I get to have another baby. And I just felt my whole soul felt crushed for her over that. And Mm -hmm. I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about what pushed you, bad choice of words, no pun intended, um, uh, towards writing that article. Um, let's start there. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Basically, I've had a lot of conversations over the last eight months, right, about birth and delivery and parenting and all of that stuff. And 
And a lot of people who don't realize that they are being judgmental are, right? So it's little comments, even like your friend said, oh, God, that sucks that you have to do that or whatever. And they're not even thinking about exactly what they're saying and what that means and what kind of pressure that might put on the mom. And so after having so many of these conversations and realizing, you know, and with the friends that have had C-sections, like I mentioned in the article, I think, you know, 10 out of the last 15 friends of mine that have had kids have had emergency C-sections. Um, they're always quick to tell you it was an emergency, mm-hmm. quick to tell yeah. you not elective. And, and that's fine. You know, I get it. It's, it's not according to plan and that can be really hard to deal with. But, you know, you never hear someone talking about, oh, here's like the struggle I had with my C-section or here's how awesome my birth was, you know, the moment that I had the surgery, they put the baby on my chest and, you know, so on. And you just don't, people don't talk about them, right? It's always, oh God, this terrible thing happened to me. And I didn't really understand why, because I think it's amazing that women can give birth in a way if they, maybe not the traditional way or what's viewed as traditional. And so I wanted to kind of unpack that for myself. And in terms of Britain Coat, just this year, we've kind of, we wanted to take on more first person narratives and kind of really just bring people in a little bit more. I think there's a lot around women's empowerment for obvious reasons in our current political climate. And so to me, I kind of thought, well, what's something that's been happening to me lately that's kind of always on my mind and I feel a little bit defensive about, and I'm not used to being a defensive person. Uh, And it was the C-section conversation. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I, as I mentioned in the article, I have two metal rods in my back. Um, I got them for scoliosis surgery when I was 12. They're about 12 inches long. So I can only bend at my neck and at my hips. And that's, hasn't stopped me from living a pretty normal life, but I do, I've had chronic back pain. You know, it's always been, always been nervous about the idea of being pregnant even. Yeah. And just like, what would that do to my body when, if I have a bad cold, I have to go to the hospital because I've sneezed so hard. Oh my goodness. (laughs) I mean, how has it been so far? It's actually been amazing. I don't know what the story is. I'm just rolling with it. Uh, And I think maybe it's that I had a high threshold to begin with. Maybe it's just I'm lucky enough to have an easy pregnancy. I'm not sure. Um, But, you know, so I had several doctor's appointments. And and the first one was, oh, no, you can can absolutely deliver. It's fine. And then if you can't, we'll just do a C-section there. And I was like, oh, okay, that's a different answer than I expected. And then I did a lot more research, and so did my doctor. And it it became clear that it was going to be the recovery was the major risk, right? And, and yeah, well, you know, some people, again, you hear crazy stories, so I don't even want to quote them, but you can imagine that it was very unclear what might happen to me after delivery, even if I did have it without a C-section. Absolutely. And so... And by the way, P.S., the recovery after a C-section ain't no picnic either. So, like, if if there's any, like, aspect of people thinking you're, you know, like, copping out or whatever... It's insane. They need to check it. It's like, yeah, six to eight weeks minimum of just like... It's major surgery. being allowed to carry your baby. Yeah. And so, but that's predictable. And so that's what ended up making the choice is, well, we know, I know how to do that. I know I can go to physical therapy. You know, like this is something where we can have a plan in place and there'll be a ton of unknowns with a new human. (laughs) 
<laughs> so maybe this one could be one of the knowns. <laughs> maybe me now, like knowing that I will be relatively yeah. health- healthy and exactly. not at risk yeah. can be enough. Yeah. I, I feel like we as women are often our worst enemies. Absolutely. And it's, again, it's these things, it's sort of off comments. People don't even realize what they're saying. Like, oh, that makes sense. You love planning things. Or that's so cool. Oh, like, ouch. I'm like, are I don't think this is like that. I do love, I love planning dinner parties. Okay. <laughs> I, like I feel like this planning. might be a little different than that. <laughs> <laughs> I do like information. That's true too. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, hopefully anyone considering parenthood would, would want some information in general. Yeah. Hopefully yeah, that's exactly. like the base level of yeah. like prepping for parenthood as information yeah. about birth. Yeah. And then medically, the other piece is that I found out it would be impossible for me to get an epidural. Um, and so oh. that's kind of a rude awakening. Yeah. <laughs> that even if we're Right, in because state, the, the rods would get in the way. Exactly, yeah. So You wrote, there's a, of course, the article is very earnest, but then there's gorgeous images to go with it because <laughs> you're you. Um, and there is a image graphic that says women need to support women humans need to support humans Mm -hmm. talk to me about why those two sentences aren't mutually exclusive yeah um i think that people kind of forget how important it is to just blindly support each other to be honest um i think throughout the pregnancy and, and actually just, again, since we're on this topic, you know, it took us about nine months to get to that place, right. Before even being pregnant for a variety of reasons. And throughout that people throw opinions around and they think they're being supportive and and they don't think they know what they're saying. And sometimes you just need a shoulder to lean on and you just need someone to kind of say, you're good. You're going to, it's going to be cool. (laughs) Um, without anything else. Mm -hmm. And I think, going through that process, I needed that reminder. And I wanted to really put that out there that it's, it's women, right? Like, like you said, sometimes we're our own worst enemy and and we say these things to each other without realizing it. But it's also that we're, you know, we're fostering the growth of people and everyone around you needs to be aware of these things and, and to support each other. And so to me, it was kind of like one came after the other, like first ladies, like let's, you know, get in line kind of and be there for each other. And then everyone, let's remember that like, we're all doing this together and we're all on the same page here, whether we're parents or not. It's like local community and global community. Like you take care of your local first. Exactly. And hope that that reverberates out into the global. Yeah. Yeah. As a side note, your pregnancy, your Gautier-esque video pregnancy photo shoot was amazing. <laughs> can you talk? I know that you wrote all of this out a tutorial. Um, sure. <laughs> but if you can just talk about, so there's a series of pictures um, on the website of you. And first of all, you have an impressive wardrobe in mm-hmm. many different dresses, standing in front of the exact same pattern that's on your dress, like the Gautier video with wallpaper. Can you talk about how you made that happen? Because it's pretty phenomenal. And why you wanted your pregnancy photo shoot to look like that versus the sort of stereotypical, like gaze down at your belly, like naked belly with possibly some like, you know, flowers in your hair. Yeah, and like a loose scarf. Exactly. Um, (laughs) So I've had a lot of fun dressing 
during my pregnancy. I think it's kind of inspired me to wear some of my wackiest pattern clothing and just kind of say, and actually, and I, I mean, maybe you experienced this too. I'm wearing a lot of tight clothing that I wouldn't normally wear. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I'm into it. You know, I'm like feeling yeah, myself. Yeah, because you're building a human being <laughs> in your body. Exactly. you got to showcase it. Yeah. And on that note, like, I don't think I've ever like loved my body as much as I do right now. So anyway, um, when it came to kind of thinking about ideas for fun photos to do, you know, I've popped into a lot of different Britain co shoots over the last nine months with my bump. I actually have a one brown bump website where I'm literally photo bombing everyone's DIY shoots <laughs> I where I just like pop into their set and then leave. Um, and so, and there was one day that I was wearing this pattern, this beautiful yellow pattern dress that I actually had gotten at a vintage store. And I said to one of our photographers, if only I had wallpaper that was exactly the same as this. And, and she was like, Hmm, what, what could we do? And we basically sat there and kind of thought, well, why don't we just take a picture of the dress and then Photoshop you onto it as the backdrop, which seemed basic enough. <laughs> so, so we did that once and I just loved the result because it was so playful and just so fun and artful, you know, for no reason. Again, it wasn't, it's, it's, cool that all these dresses have been mine over the years. None of them are maternity dresses. Oh, really? Yeah, none of them. um, Yeah, actually. I like that it's like a pregnancy in the pattern wilds. Yeah, yeah. So they're all clothes that I've had for years. Some of them I've had since middle school. Some of them, um, actually, there are two pregnancy maternity dresses in there, and they were my mom's when she was pregnant with me. So those are the exception. But, um, but anyway, so the process was we, so I brought in 40 dresses, we hung them up in rainbow order, steamed everything. And then we took a photo of each dress on the hanger so that it was laying flat kind of against the wall. Then I put on each dress and kind of, you know, did my little poses. (laughs) And then we picked our favorites. Were you in front of a green screen at that point or just like um, a flat white wall? It was a white wall. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was actually white foam core so that it was easier to clip. And then, um, our photographer, Brittany just clipped me out, clipped the selects out of each, each shot and placed it on the backdrop that we had shot digitally. And it, it turned out so well, I couldn't even get over it. It's so fantastic. I feel like it needs to be a a catalog. I mean, a calendar, right? (laughs) I'll give that to my daughter. <laughs> Here you go. That's right. Here you go. Yes. You're welcome. No, it's all right. <laughs> We've talked a little bit about sort of the evolving um, creation of a branded look or mm-hmm. of just an overall, just overall appearance um, for a company. And I wondered if, if before we we go, if you would share a little bit of advice for independent designers, artists, Mm -hmm. um, artisans who now find themselves, you know, in a world where everybody's expected to know a little bit about photography and about um, editing images and about styling, if you could give a little bit of advice to, you know, sort of the independents out there that are kind of struggling or trying to figure out how to create their own visual story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I always say, and I kind of mentioned this, that it's mood boards or Pinterest boards or whatever you want to do are the best place to start. And I always like to start with likes and dislikes and kind of go through and have to defend why I like something and why I dislike it. And you can do this by yourself or you can do it with a friend or a cohort. 
uh, kind of depending. And I think it's really helpful to then print a bunch of things out and actually tape them on the wall and look at them and figure out what it is that you like about each thing. And so, and ideally in that exercise, you'll distill what's unique about your point of view. So maybe you love the color palette in this, but you love the informal vibe of this photo, Mm -hmm. you know, so what does that combination look like? And then what does it look like when you add words to it? And, and that's always, I'd say the best place to start for me. Um, I also actually in the same vein, like to write out words that feel on brand and off brand. And so that could be slang words. That could be things like, we don't use abbreviations. We do. Um, and, and those types of things. And it feels really basic and sort of like, well, I already know this stuff. But I think the exercise is super helpful because um, it'll just help you distill things a bit further. Yeah. So you can see it manifest before your eyes. Exactly. Yeah. Those, yeah, that's great. Those are great tips. Thank you so much. And thank you. Thank you, Angelica. It's been lovely talking with you today. Yeah, um, I wish you so much like mama strength and peace and happiness. I'm so excited for you. And I appreciate you thank being you. here. Yes, thank you so much. It was great chatting. For more information on Angelica, Britain Co., and for a chance to win your choice of one of the new Britain Co. for Target activity kits, go to Angelica's show notes page at vickihowell.com craftish. To enter, you just need to post a comment letting us know which kit or kits float your crafty boat. There is a link on the page. If you just click on the picture, it'll take you to see the full collection. And all commenters will be entered to win. Those comments just need to be posted by 10 p.m. Central on March 22nd. Craftish is a Campbell production. It's produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by Explosions in the Sky. Thank you so much for listening to the Craftish podcast. If you're digging what you heard either today from Angelica or from any of the other episodes, please share them with friends. And also, if you haven't done so so far, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. On the next episode of Craftish, I'll sit down with the fabric designer and amazing needlework artist, Anna Marie Horner. That episode will go live next Thursday. Also next week, keep your eyes open for a big old Kickstarter campaign we're launching. We are so excited about it, and I just am bursting at the seams to be able to tell you about it. And hope that you guys will want to jump on board with us, so keep keep your peepers open. Until then, make a little time to be creative, breathe in craft out.